Hello, welcome to Unbiased with me, Dashi Harindra. I help organizations rethink how they use data and new technologies in a compliant, unbiased, and inclusive way. I'm on a mission to rehumanize technology so that we can max out on all the potential benefits it brings whilst keeping people very much at the center of its oversight and success. Now, this podcast is very much centered on the human side of the equity and inclusion equation. Through guests sharing their stories of how bias has affected and continues to affect their day-to-day lives, we can get a glimpse into the beautifully complex fabric interwoven into our communities. And we can learn about some of their work in trying to address or combat the ill effects of some of those biases. So it's the end of the year and there's one topic that we haven't covered yet this year but always takes on a world of its own when everyone is crawling to this arbitrary annual finish line and that's burnout. And joining me to tackle this head on is DEI practitioner extraordinaire Keishi Tilak Ramesh. Keishi is an accomplished DEI strategist and lawyer with a passion for delivering impactful education and creating sustainable systemic change. She's a senior industry fellow with RMIT's Centre for Future Skills and Workforce Transformation and board director of YWCA Australia, Australia's principal gender equality movement. As a fierce advocate for multiculturalism and intersectional gender equality, Keishi served as the Multicultural Youth Commissioner of Victoria between 2019 and 2021, and she represented Australia's gender equality priorities on a global stage at the 67th United Nations Commission on the Status of Women in New York earlier this year. Keishi, welcome to this final episode of of the podcast for 2023. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So look, burnout took on a whole identity of its own, right, throughout the pandemic. And 2023 has been an exhausting year for so many as we navigate post-pandemic life amidst you know, global instability brought on by the economic fallout from the pandemic. We've got continued warfare in Ukraine, the Middle East, ever-increasing polarization all around us. And then closer to home and at a corporate level. We've seen redundancies in big corporates across the board. DEI and people-related budgets slashed. And somehow we need to stave off burnout whilst maintaining record-breaking levels of quote-unquote productivity. So Keishi, as someone who, as well as being a DEI strategist, has developed workshops and frameworks specifically targeted at getting from burnout to balance in practical ways. I think it's so timely for us to address, um, particularly when many of us will be in reflection mode and determined to do things a bit differently in 2024. It's also an area that I've really been wanting to tackle from a bias perspective for so long. So I'm really excited to get stuck in. And to that end, Katie, before I get your take on this for right now. First, share your story with us. It's how I always start my guest interviews. Um, And share with us whether you have had a personal relationship with burnout yourself. Absolutely. I think it's 
so timely, so topical, and I've had a very personal experience with burnout, to say the least. So growing up as a woman of colour in a regional area, I think there was a lot of weight given to this whole idea of you can't be what you can't see. So there weren't really a whole lot of leaders who looked like me at the time that I could see. So naturally, I took that as somewhat of a personal mission to strive towards leadership and um, set an example for other people. So this led to studying law, being a carer for my dad, who was unwell at the time, stepping onto boards when I was 17, um, being involved in various uni clubs, being the friend who always had time for other people, being a mentor to other students, being a student ambassador, being a supportive partner, teaching at the university, and generally feeling like I was failing at at least one of these roles at all times. After graduating uni and working as a lawyer for a little bit, I continued to take annual leave to serve on boards, and I also took on the role of Multicultural Youth Commissioner of Victoria, a role that I loved dearly, which saw me travel all over the state for different engagements outside of the nine-to-five gig. It wasn't until much later that I realised that this example that I was setting was wholly unsustainable. It was a facade. I used to live for these comments and it's kind of embarrassing to admit now, but I'd have other people say to me like, oh, I don't know how you find the time to do it, Keishi. Like there's only 24 hours in a day. And I take such pride in being like, I don't know, you just make time for it. Or doing like, you know, the sheepish shrug off. And there was this this weird sense of pride, I guess, in being able to to be everything to everyone and find time for everything and be able to succeed in, you know, so many areas when I was very, very... Um, you know, reluctant, I guess, to admit that there were these sort of shortcomings and, um, I guess, pieces around serving so many roles that um, were slowly sort of crumbling in the background. So I was also fortunate to be um, awarded a few different accolades at the time, which was really great. But, you know, I'd, I'd come home afterwards and be like, oh, no, what next? Like it was this weird sense of not being able to actually enjoy what was happening, but constantly having the blinders on and looking ahead and being like, okay, what's the next thing I need to do? And I I would never even sort of sit down and be like, wow, it's so great that this has happened. So I think that really led to this, um, I guess, identity crisis around who was I outside of work, outside of the boards, outside of achievements. Like how much time have I spent with that person? What does she care about? You know, what are her values? How do I know who I am outside of, you know, these constructs that we're told are so important? And a really ugly question was why I felt like my self-worth was so tied to productivity, career progress, achievement, and, you know, how I could work. So I think that really caused this reflection moment, especially during COVID, looking at, okay, now that I'm work from home and, you know, it takes away all of the, um, you know, the extra bits around when we are locked down. It was really this question of like, hmm, is this what I want to do? Is this how I want to live? Is there actual pride in, you know, sacrificing your health and not making time to, you know, look after your own well-being? Is there is there pride in climbing a ladder or really putting in all of these extra hours if you don't see your family? And I think that identity crisis, from what I've heard, resonates with a lot of people around that time where we were all sorts of forced to sit back and really reconcile with this identity piece. It's funny, Keishi, listening to your story there it certainly resonated with me and I totally agree I think it will resonate with so many but I also went through similar and had chalked it down to a bit of early onset midlife crisis and so to hear that coming from you know a sprightly 20 something year old like you uh, really hits home and there's a lot to unpack there because there's the out and out 
doing so much uh, with our limited energy resources as a human, where sometimes it seems like, and certainly to others, must have seemed like you were doing more than seemed as humanly possible. And there's also this element of how much do we bring this on ourselves? That's also kind of an ugly question. Did I, did I have something to do with it? And, and this is in a, in a way kind of going straight to this idea and the thoughts I've been having about bias and burnout because the story you share is very much something that I hear amongst migrant women, uh, people from, in certainly in the corporate sense, who are underrepresented in leadership, where, you know, you can't see what you want to be, and therefore you are throwing everything but the kitchen sink at getting there. And I feel like there's been a bit of a conspiracy of silence when we look at burnout from that, you know, all the practical things that we can do. Um, there's almost a myth to be busted when it comes, you know, to burnout, certainly in the corporate world. And that is that, you know, a few days break peppered with a bit of mindfulness and breathing techniques will be enough to get you out of a cycle of burnout and that you can just then come right on back to that stressful situation that burns you out in the first place when, in my view, a break or even stopping to just consider it without having help from outside, without really figuring out what your boundaries are um, and how addressing how that stressful situation that put you into burnout can be changed to prevent the cycle happening again, that we're not going to progress out of it in a sustainable way. Do you have any thoughts on this? And, and sort of what's the end of the story for you? Are, are you cured, Katie? <laughs> I would love to think so, but I would be wholeheartedly lying. <laughs> no, I think it's it's something that I hear all the time is this um, spa day in the sky almost of like, I'll just have this one spa trip and then my life will work itself out and everything will be amazing. And I think, um, you know, I challenge anybody who's going on the quote unquote holiday from burnout to tell me whether there was any point at which that holiday where they weren't thinking about work and I think it happens so often you can take a 10-day break how many times has a work-related thought like seeped in to the you know periphery of your of your mind where you finally relax then you're like I have to come back to this thing or I wonder if this thing is landing while I'm away oh did I forget something and and I think the best example of it is like when you take a, a nap, for example, or you go to sleep and you wake up multiple times, like I wouldn't get to the end of that sleep and be like, wow, what a restful sleep. Like it doesn't fix anything. We didn't get a chance to rest. Like we were, you know, constantly interrupted so many times. And because so much of this is um, related to our body and the way that our nervous system regulates, um, there's so many things like, you know, elevated heart rate, a quickened breath, a cool sweat that was randomly brought on because you remembered something. And I think that is that whole idea of like the body keeps score and the body will remind you that, you know, you, you are still in that fight or flight space of burnout. And this whole idea of taking a holiday away from burnout, it doesn't really address the systemic nature of workplace burnout either. 
So things like high workloads, lack of recognition, um, not enough resources, unreasonable hours, micromanaging, or even just inequitable power dynamics. Like nothing, none of that is going to be solved on this 10 day, you know, voyage into the, into the spa and wellness sort of space. So our physiological response to burnout is also a learned response that's built over time. So even if you manage to relax a little bit and sort of forget about things, the minute your body goes back into that environment, it's, you've almost trained it. It'll, it'll tense up again. So you'll tense right up the minute you get there or even in anticipation of, of going back to work. So I think that we're sort of setting ourselves up for failure in some ways by perpetuating this narrative that, you know, it's take a spa day, take a rest, do this and you will be okay. I think, you know, what you sort of touched on earlier is exactly what we need to be doing, which is really doing the the ugly sort of work or the, you know, not so appealing as a facial work um, to discover what is causing us stress, what are the root causes and, you know, where are the systems and structures that aren't really supporting me to feel like I can do my work in a productive way. Absolutely. And so taking that, Keishi, into the work that you've done um, and continue to do in the DEI space, how are you seeing that play out at a more macro level with the people that you've supported? And how do we start to address those root systemic conditions that make burnout much more likely than it should be? Yeah, I think you know, some really easy ways to see it almost personified at work is um, this glorification of busy culture. Of like, it, like it, it became a weird thing. I had a friend at work um, where we almost had a game between us where we would catch each other off guard around the office and be like, hey, Keishi, how are you doing? And I'd be like, oh, I'm good, how are you? And if I responded in that weird, like, almost automatic, I haven't even considered how I am, I just sort of said, you know, the, the closest socially acceptable word to progress the conversation, I'd get called out on it. So we got quite good at doing this exercise on um, really reflecting on how we are and not just saying, oh, it's a really busy week because we would say, okay, well, what makes it busy? And you'd sort of delve into it. So I think a part of it is acknowledging this culture that we have where we feel like we're doing good work if we're busy. Because I've definitely been in a space where I found myself sitting at a desk for probably longer than what I needed to trying to do something, not because I was intentionally trying to waste time, but because you've been burnt out over such a long period that it takes you a lot longer to get something done. So this whole idea of, is it really serving me to engage in this behavior? Even though I see people, you know, around the office doing the same thing, should we all be sitting here as long as we are? Or like, is there a different way to do this? Would we get it done faster and easier if we collaborated like how do we go back to some of those roots where um i feel like there's quite an individualistic culture a lot of the time on like it's up to me to save everything like how do we move back into that working together space but i think similar to what i spoke about at the beginning like it's this question on whose voice is it in your head that are telling you these things like who's telling you that you know you don't have self-worth unless you are productive or who's telling you that you know, when you lie down, that's really unproductive. And you hear it in how people talk about their weekends. Like they'll, they'll put a really negative spin on, oh, I just laid around all day, did nothing. It was a bit of a nothing weekend. It's not, oh, I rested all day really intentionally and it was a great time. It's this, this idea on like, oh, and it was a bad thing. So I think that disrupting some of those are really, um, really good ones. And there's a really great quote that I actually saw recently on Instagram that I just loved, which is this idea 
um, by Nicola Jane Hobbs, which said, instead of asking, have I worked hard enough to deserve rest? Ask, have I rested enough to do my most loving and meaningful work? And I think that was a big thing for me where I was like, yeah, I do feel like I have to earn a rest. I need to like really grind myself throughout the day to be like, oh, I deserve to, you know, sit down and sleep or whatever it might be. So I think even like I have that quote on my desktop being like, if you are feeling creatively uninspired and we have data to back this up, that when you are burnt out, you are less creative. Is it helping me to be sitting here trying to do this or should I go take a walk or should I go do other things? I feel that so much. Um, This year, actually, I had this real kind of bet with myself to try not to use that word busy. And it's this, it's a two pronged thing. There's this wearing your busyness as a badge of honor. But then even when you're telling yourself, no, you know, that's not, that's not the way to be, you know, my other sort of quote that's that I sort of tangentially linked to the same thing is that motion doesn't mean progress and that sense of sometimes we can fill our days with plenty of busy work and feel like we've earned a rest but actually there was probably one key thing that we should have done that day and we managed to do a million other things rather than the one thing that really needs to be done all in the quest to be able to still tell our friends at the end of the day we've been super busy and then when you as someone that then took tried to take myself out of that there was a lot of ego that i had to address in myself at how uncomfortable i felt if all the people around me were telling me how busy they were and i wasn't and that i somehow uh, was less and would somehow be perceived as being less productive if I wasn't go, 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 go all the time. And in that regard, it's one thing to sort of, yeah, start to chip away at taking the power out of that word busy. Um, but how, what does that mean for how we define productivity or what do we need our leaders to tell us to sort of feel like we have permission in the workplace to have a more well-paced day and to look after our health but not feel like we could still have our neck on the line and particularly when things are really hard and there are people being made redundant all around us and we are lucky to have a job at all what safety and security do we need our leaders to help create to pave that way? Yeah, I think it's a it's a massive question because so much of it is that it's almost like no one else is speaking up. So I need to, you know, so everyone must be having the same experience and I need to sit down and you notice it in small ways. Like you're leaving the office, you've got an appointment at five and you see that there's six other people in your same like desk block who are still sitting there. You're like, oh no, I don't want to be the one who leaves early. It's it's almost this weird game of, of outlast. And I think from an organizational culture perspective, I find this fascinating. And this is the sort of stuff that I love doing because it's this idea of um, what is what is making people feel like that is the behavior that is expected. And for some organizations I've worked with, it's been, um, you know, I don't know why people overwork. I tell them to leave at five all the time but then they might see you as a manager logging on at 9 p.m. sending emails. So there's part of this that's systemic and there's part of this that is personal behaviour. So when I work with organisations, I'll ask people questions around, 
you know, do you think people feel supported in taking a lunch break? Do you think people feel supported to attend your, uh, like your lunch and learn sessions, for example, or like any of the events that you put on? Do people feel comfortable leaving at the end of the day? And then the question becomes, where have you clearly articulated expectations? And a lot of organizations will realize that they have not written it down anywhere. Like they haven't actually recorded what time the start and the end of the day is. So everyone's just going off what their manager does or everyone's going off what the wider team does. And then the question is, if you have articulated it somewhere, what do you think is making people feel otherwise? So even though it's easy to write down, we clock off at five o'clock or we clock off at 5.30, who of your leaders are working overtime? <laughs> and why do they feel the need to work overtime? It's almost like this um, almost like rabbit hole mission of really going down to understand what's reinforcing the behavior. And then from there, it's also looking at like, as a manager, what could you be doing? Or like what biases or assumptions are you perpetuating by how you're acting? Like, and that's, a, again, ugly questions, right? So is it that you question what your team's doing if you can't see them? So the, the bums on seats mentality on, I need to see people in the office in order to know that they're being productive. When the reality could be that they're way more productive at home and in the office, they're less productive because, you know, they're around all their friends or whatever it may be. Or is it expectations of hours? Do you expect your team members to work in a really rigid um not so flexible hourly time for whatever great reasons, but you work outside of that. So they expect that they have to work, you know, their core hours as well as the hours that you're working outside of those, those times. Or is there um, something that I see quite commonly is for parents. So there's a lot of really fantastic organizations that take really progressive approaches to parenthood. So they allow their team members to leave early to pick up kids or they allow their team annual leave for all those important moments in life, which is great. But how are we making sure that we're sweetening the deal in an equitable way? So for the people who don't have kids, where are the moments where we let them go home early? Where are the moments where we allow them to take annual leave for something that's important to them? So there are these questions around like, even if we have these really incredible initiatives, where are these little pockets where people might be slipping through the cracks and we've acted in a way knowingly or unknowingly to encourage a particular behavior that might be leading to burnout. So you'll find that there are people who feel like they can't, you know, it might be a no questions asked thing if their kid has a violin recital, but for this person who's single has no kids, they really struggle to tell you as a manager when they need time off just to do something that brings them joy because it creates a whole other expectation. It doesn't support this um, role of a caring mother, for example. They're just taking time off to spend it with a friend, which seems more frivolous, for example, than, um, you know, supporting a child. Oh, yes, that's a whole, a whole other issue then, isn't it, over, uh, yeah, what, 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 counts as as legitimate time out um and having to justify that i mean keishi that the biggest takeaway i get from everything i've heard from you is that burnout is not an individual's problem in and of itself um i think really that in and of itself is a very powerful thing for someone who is or may have been or going through burnout of layering on with it that 
self-blame, um, facing those ugly questions of, well, hang on, what role have I played? What more could I have done? What responsibility do I have? Just understanding that this is not just about you, uh, particularly in the corporate context. There are so many factors at play and you are likely to be affected in different ways, depending on you know where you sit at any of the intersections of life. And if you, on top of everything, have to code switch, measure your tone, how you deliver things, how you're doing things, how you even ask for some time out because you perceive that there is a legitimate reason, oh, I've got, you know, my kids got um, their school play versus a quote unquote frivolous reason, that person with the frivolous reason is actually going to just wind themselves up even more, just contemplating how to ask to get what they need. And as is often the case on this podcast and with these kinds of issues, we can blow it out into the massive problem that it is. Um, and we can seek to try and solve it in a 30 minute uh, podcast episode, Keishi. Or we can at least try and bring it all back together and break this down. And this is where, you know, I'd love to get some of your gold because we brought in all these elements. And as I said, I bring that together to say, guys, when it comes to burnout, there's a collective responsibility for preventing it. Um, and that has to go to real tangible actions from leaders. It's not enough to just say, oh, guys, you're empowered to take ownership and take agency over your own mental health. So when you are bringing that together in some of your educational forums and, and really bringing that balance in, can you take us through this? how we can break this all down um, and who should be taking responsibility for what in a corporate organizational sense? Yeah, I think there's, um, as you say, like, absolutely, there are systemic reasons behind burnout. And it's ingrained in so many of the things we do. And by very nature of being a capitalist society in a lot of ways, like the system benefits from people working themselves to the core. Like the 40 the hour work week hasn't changed in a very long time. Yet technology has advanced at such a rapid pace and we still haven't changed the hours. So when you think about the value that employers are getting from employees or you think about the levels of work that are expected of now households that often have two working parents, for example, it's a very different picture to what we had so many years ago. So I think that there are some things that are absolutely systemic, but there is this other piece that you have talked about around this personal side on ugly questions, as I like to put it, or crunchy questions, which you'll hear me say a lot, of what's our role in this. And as you say, with these different pieces around, um, say, for example, being a person of colour working in an organisation and how that might be different to the way that you experience burnout compared to somebody who isn't. I remember there was a conversation I actually had with a manager once where I said to them, um, I think I'd missed a deadline or something. And I said to them, you know, they said, what's going on? Like, you know, how can I help? You need to push back on me if there's too much work. And I had this really, and it, you know, to the credit of this manager, I felt really comfortable with them. And I said to them, do you know how hard it is for me to push back on work? Because culturally, it's a really big thing that you respect authority and that you respect superiors. Me asking myself some of those ugly questions, but me um, pushing back on you is me admitting to myself that I can't do this or that I don't have capacity to do this. And it took me a really long time to understand that that's not the same for everybody. And some other people are like, no, I don't have capacity. 
And I'm like, wow, what a wild superpower. But it's a superpower that you need to learn for sustainability because there were these unwritten rules between me and this manager that I would push back if I felt like it was too much. So in lieu of me doing that, they were like, well, what is the problem then? Like, how do I support you? And it really did force me to to reconcile with this cultural side of it on, you know, there's power and privilege at play here with different um, different personalities and different backgrounds and experiences. But how has my upbringing and my culture and all of these sort of cultural ideals on respecting authority and all these different pieces, how does that play into the way that I show up to work and the way that I can set boundaries around work and all of these pieces where I can take responsibility for the different frameworks and the different um, activities and safeguards that I put around myself to protect from burnout as well. Yeah. Um, And so what is the, what are some of the practical things that we can put into play for ourselves? Yeah. So I'll share some that are probably more personal. I think when I've looked at a lot of burnout education, there's a lot that you can find um, that's readily available. And it's all the things that I sort of put myself in the eye roll camp of. Not that they're not great. They are great tips. But whenever someone tells me to get more sleep, it's a bit of an eye roll. <laughs> they tell me, like, get outside and move more. And I'm like, I know, I know I should do that. Um, so what I'm going to share with my time here is is more things that I found personally useful that you probably couldn't find um, if you were sort of looking online. Because I think absolutely go online and check out the common things for burnout, which are things like building habits and exercise and, and, you know, diet and a few of these other things around sleep, especially. There was some wild study, actually, I'm blanking on the stat, but I think it's if you are sleep deprived for 18 hours, you actually have a blood alcohol level equivalent to 0.01, which is wild. Like that's, you know, when you think about yourself in a cycle of burnout, not having sleep, you know, that's really not going to help you. Um, But moving on to some of those practical things and exercise that, I often facilitate for people is something called burnout bingo, which is a a bingo card um, that I filled out with different photos where um, I'm a really big believer in that burnout shows up differently for everybody. And it might not even be burnout. It can be compassion fatigue. For example, if you operate in a field that's actually dealing with a lot of trauma and dealing with a lot of different people, can be compassion fatigue, can be advocacy fatigue. There's so many different things, but in a broader sense, there's an activity I run, which is a bingo card, where you write down the different signs for yourself of when you are getting burned out. Burned out. So I had things on there like, my Uber Eats receipt is incredibly long because I'm not cooking anymore because I don't have the energy. I'm just buying things willy-nilly. I had things on there like growing cynicism, where I was making these snappy, sarcastic comments that are totally not me but they just sort of fell out and I don't know where they've come from. Um, getting snappy at friends or, or avoiding text messages and another one for me where I feel overwhelmed by the amount of texts in my inbox. So I just don't respond to people or, um, you know, another huge one is this inability to assume the best of people. So when someone does something or someone goes wrong, my immediate mind is like, Oh, they did this because of blah, blah, blah. Instead of saying this is a person in their own right. And I don't know what they're experiencing. So I'd say, Step one, create this checklist on what are these signs for you that things aren't going great or you've noticed these parts of yourself that you don't recognize. And this is that getting to know yourself really well work around how do I know that I'm slipping into these more unsustainable periods. The other thing that I find really useful is um, actually making a list of some of the activities that replenish me. 
So looking at, so for me, it's music. I'm a really big music person, hanging out with friends, going on walks, um, you know, eating better, like all of your typical lists. But what makes the difference is actually tiering those lists by energy. So when you look at something like music, the idea of pulling out my electric guitar and pulling out my mic and recording something while I am in a state of burnout is bad. I'm not going to go to the effort to pull all of these things out and do it. So what I do instead is I think about what are the steps within that activity that could bring me joy and give me this sense of self and bring me back to that place that doesn't require as much energy as that. So my high energy might be pull out all of the equipment, record a song. My medium one might just be chuck on a karaoke track and have a sing along for a little bit. And my bottom tier might be put some music on in the apartment. So it's looking at how do we create space and time and permission for ourselves to not show up as the most high energy version. And what does that look like for say cooking? I love cooking. So up here in the high energy space might be go and cook a full course meal. The middle space might be make a snack or like go and try a dessert or something more simple. The very end could be scroll social media and save some recipes to Pinterest. And it's looking for these ways that we can really move back and resonate to ourselves, engage in those activities that bring us joy in a way that also matches our energy levels. Two things there. One, I think something that we didn't maybe set out um, up front, but when we talk about burnout and burnout has become quite common parlance over these last few years, particularly this year. And as I, as I mentioned, it's particularly at the end, end of a year. I kind of want to emphasize that if you're at those burnout levels, if you have had burnout, if you are there right now and you are really in burnout, that is, it's kind of the extreme and it's the end of that trail to exhaustion that Keisha, you sort of track back to spotting the signs and taking ownership at that level and doing the things that you need to do that work for you to manage that so that we don't even have to stare down the barrel of burnout proper where you literally then can't get yourself out of bed. You really are incapacitated. But what is so important and what came across from what you were sharing and those tips you're sharing is that is a really kind of long runway actually to burnout and actually our responsibility sits at those earlier stages um when i'm coaching clients you know self-awareness comes up so high on whatever your goals are whether it's you know leadership um, performance and right down to this managing burnout because you need to be only you can know that certain things are going are a sure sign that you're a bit knackered and you need to manage yourself to go back to that, to your quote, are you rested enough to do your best work? So these are, this should be part of your job description. If your JD says you have to, you know, perform A, B, C, D, KPIs, that means that you need the energy to perform A, B, C, D. Um, and I love that you've brought everything back down to energy because that is what this is all about for me at the end of the day. It also reminds me of this, you know, when you talk about chronic fatigue a lot of the time, or you talk about disability, there's this idea of spoon theory. I don't know if you've heard spoon theory, but it's this whole thing of at the start of the day, you have so many spoons 
and every activity that you do or um, conversation you have, you give away a certain amount of spoons. And for people who have these invisible disabilities, you start with less spoons than other people. Um, but also it's interesting because when you do look at this from a intersectional level, um, the labor that happens for different people, they will give away spoons for activities that other people wouldn't have to do. So say if you are someone with a disability, you might have to explain that disability 10 times throughout the day to someone to get it. And that takes away some spoons. So your burnout could come at a much quicker level than everyone else because you do face this advocacy burnout or same thing to people of color, for example, or going through microaggressions and all these different pieces. This, the very idea of, of burnout is this idea around, I had a definition somewhere that I think captures it well, which is burnout is characterized by a prolonged response to chronic interpersonal stresses on the job. And yes, that includes all of the things we talked about before of high workloads, lack of resources, um, limited recognition, et cetera, et cetera. But also for different underrepresented groups, there's a whole range of interpersonal stresses that can contribute to this as well. So when you look at those little um, pieces of systemic discrimination, you look at microaggressions in the workplace, you look at this advocacy role that you probably don't want, but you hold anyway, because if you don't, who will, where you are advocating for the needs of your communities and others, all of those things lead to this burnout space. So I think that the rationale of me saying that burnout is is different for everyone is this real grounding and acknowledgement that your experience, even though you and I, Darshi, are very similar, we will have completely different experiences of burnout based on um, a whole range of different factors. I couldn't agree more. Um, if I could whittle everything down to that energy, I guess, and it's how I how I relate your spoons, really. Yeah, we have that we all have a finite amount of energy that we start our day with. Um, that's about all I really recall from my high school physics days. Um, but it's that energy can neither be created or destroyed, but it can be transferred. So you have this and it, you, can, you will be transferring it to all kinds of different places. And, and I wholeheartedly agree, and it's why I support so many underrepresented groups when it comes to performance, is because we have to acknowledge that in the corporate workplace, you are likely to have spoons flying out and energy being depleted at a faster rate because of those things. It may also even be because of some of the, the examples you gave in your own personal scenario, Keishi, of you know not finding it an easy thing to do to push back um, on work because of your background and how you have been conditioned to behave in those circumstances where others have a much uh, uh, can much more easily say nope, don't have capacity and um, and put those boundaries in place, and and all we're asking at this stage is for that acknowledgement that there are going to be people in your workforce um, that will be crossing off different things and maybe more things faster on their burnout bingo cards, essentially. And I think it's a really interesting thing that you highlighted about the, the bog standard, you know, do your movement, your exercise, your sleep. Because Keish, I am like the queen bee of, I've read all the things, all the books. I know where that sleep stat came from. I'm, I chucked that Matthew Walker, why we sleep book at anyone that will come close because I've been so moved by it myself. Um, I'm a sucker for any of those 
you know, productivity slash wellness slash self-help books, podcasts, programs. But it took me years for that penny to drop that sometimes that actually exacerbates a propensity for cycles of pushing until burnout. Because now I'm holding all this data in my head, all the ways that I could be damaging my physical and mental health. And this is just sort of adding to my load because I don't feel like I have the structures in place to um, enact all of those um, and can drive yourself crazy doing it. Or you think I want to have this perfect morning routine and suddenly you've got to be up at four in the morning if you want to fit in that journaling, a workout, yoga, (laughs) mindfulness just before your workday starts. So that is one area where I encourage everyone to ask themselves those crunchy questions of what serves me, what doesn't. So I think it's just so great to have all of those things laid out on the table. Um, And sometimes just doing what you need to do is the right thing to do. And you know what, Keishi, this is ultimately all to say that there are about at least half a dozen different avenues that we could really explore to to break this down and the more I think about it I think what better way to actually start 2024 than setting ourselves up for a year that doesn't end with us careering into exhaustion and language around burnout and crawling to the finish line and busy 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 and so on a more uplifting note Keishi leave us with one or two things that you will be implementing from January to set you up for sustainable success, Keishi. Yeah, happy to. I think when I did a lot of my reflection about next year, and that's an ongoing and ever-continuing process, the real thing that struck me was this idea about intention and being intentional. And I think so much work and so much protection around burnout and and how we can really set ourselves up for success is this idea of being intentional with making sure we're setting boundaries or making sure that we're asking ourselves those ugly questions that I spoke about on where did this come from who told me this like I don't know did someone tell me this growing up one time and I just grabbed onto it and you know committed it to my central tenants or is it a manager that told me this and really looking at those pieces but then also looking at the intentional space on how do I build a really sustainable framework and practice in order to support myself throughout the year. So my, you know, me being a lover of the practical, uh, my best tip for this is I get actually a 2024 calendar that's a calendar on a page. So it sits on the back of my door and it's, you know, Jan, Feb, March, all across all 12 months. And I'm a very visual person. I need to see the year. It makes it seem a little bit more tangible to me. Um, And there's a few things that I do throughout that. So the first thing I do is I mark in all the public holidays. And then I think it's Seek that every year puts out a how to maximize your annual leave article. Look it up. It's brilliant. It tells you what days to take annual leave on in order to make like four day weekends and five day weekends. So how can you use that annual leave strategically? Then for me with working in the diversity, equity, inclusion space, I know that there are certain periods of the year that are pretty busy for me. So there are some that are, say, for example, linked to days of significance. So I mark all of those in and then I book in activities around those times. <laughs> so I'll book in holidays or weekends away or I'll book in a spa trip and things that I have to book in advance because I'm one of those people who, if I leave it up to myself at the time to book it, I know my myself will not do it. My burnt out self will book nothing and it, I will veg on the couch. 
So I will book all of those things in advance and then also um, come to an understanding on what the perfect month looks like for you. Not in a really granular way, but more in like, I want to go on a walk once a week. I want to do this. I want to do that. And not moving into the category on this unsustainable to-do list that we spoke about earlier, um, but more looking at things that are more holistic. Like I want to see my friends once. How do I make sure I build that into the month? I want to, I don't know, make a recipe from scratch once. I got to a point where I was actually putting on there, you know, planning things like I'm going to say like change my bed sheets here, here and here. I'm going to put this here, here and here. And I would map out certain things to break these tasks down into smaller parts or like I want to clean the apartment here so that I could really fit in that maintenance side, the well-being side, the connection with friends and family side, as well as the work side. And I think that helps me plan for the year, but it also can get you to a very different outcome, which is still useful on, I can't possibly fit all of these things into the year. So what am I doing to make that slightly more sustainable? And I think that that exercise going into 2024 will help immensely. I really love that. Super practical. And I feel like something that we will need to check in on, if at all for an accountability perspective or just really, as I said, making sure that something different happens next year so we're not in that same space. Um, I am sure so many people that listen to this will take away uh, practical things that they can make work for them. Um, I think you are speaking to so many highly organized, high achieving corporate professionals that can both benefit from some of your gamification and also some of your active planning. I think it's really important to be able to preempt well in advance and get stuff booked in. Because as you said, um, not only might you be that person that won't do it at the last minute, but I guess it's almost the same logic that I apply to, you know, not going to the supermarket hungry <laughs> where you just then end up yeah. by <laughs> sweeping everything in the trolley. It's actually saying, don't, don't wait until you're tired to then have to force your brain to de- defer energy to making a plan um, that works. Absolutely. I hope you have a killer start to 2024. Uh, that is preempted with a beautiful, time out for reflection and I can't wait to keep on following you and keep this conversation going in 2024 thank you Katie thanks so much for having me and thank you to everyone listening as well I hope you have the best 2024 I hope you enjoyed this episode of unbiased with me Darshi Harindra I derive so much energy and learn so much from speaking to such inspiring guests and amplifying diverse voices If you feel the same way, please do subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you consume your content from and follow me and the podcast so you can get all the latest episodes as they drop. I'd also love to hear from you. What works for you? What do you like to hear more of? You can connect with me via my website, darshiharindra.com. Until next time, stay open, 